Welcome to The Savvy Sauce, where we have practical chats for intentional living. I'm your host, Laura Duggar, and I'm so glad you're here. I'm excited to introduce you to an old friend and today's sponsor, Justin Most. He's an expert EOS implementer, a certified speaker for the John Maxwell team, and a passionate coach committed to glorifying God by helping business owners get everything they want from their business. I would love to first give a shout out to our youngest daughter, Kessler Story, as today is her third birthday. Happy birthday, baby girl. We love you so much. And as many of you already know, my sister is the editor of The Savvy Sauce. So from Natalie and from me, happy anniversary to our parents, Bill and Jeannie. My guest for today was extremely popular the first time he came on The Savvy Sauce to discuss love languages. And today I'm excited to again get to host Dr. Gary Chapman to discuss all his helpful recommendations for loving the teenager in our life. You will learn the profound impact you will make on a future generation by stewarding this responsibility well to guide your teenager. Dr. Chapman sums up the importance of this topic in an intro of his recent book where he writes, the decisions that are made during these formative years will greatly impact the individual for the rest of their life. So if you're a parent or an adult who interacts with teenagers, I hope you enjoy listening in as we glean his wisdom about ways we can support the teens we love. Here's our chat. Welcome back to the Savvy Sauce, Dr. Chapman. Well, thank you. It's great to be back with you again. And I know that you have raised your own teenagers and you've also studied them and written books about teenagers and counseled many of them and their parents. So what has your career taught you about both teenagers and their parents? My career has taught me that almost every parent and teenager has struggles from time to time. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let's face it, the teenager is going through a lot of changes in their life, mentally, physically, all of that, you know, and uh, nobody told me that there was a big transition between childhood and the teenage years. I just assumed that whatever was working when they were children was going to work when they're teenagers. And that's just not true. And I think also because we, I had a lot of struggles in particular with my son when he was a teenager. I knew the pain, the struggle, the, the hurt, and often the failures that take place in, that, in those years between parents and teens. And uh, that's what motivated me to uh, write some things on teenagers and, and this book in particular, things I wish I'd known before our children became teenagers. I think many parents, they don't read anything about what to expect in the teenage years. And and like me, when they get there, uh, they're kind of shocked at, what, at what's happening. And so, uh, uh, you know, that, that's what motivated me to try to help others with teenagers. And then the counseling I've done through the years, because many of the couples that come to see me, uh, they come not so much because they have marriage problems, but because they're having problems with their teenager. And they want they want some help in terms of how do we respond to this or that or the other thing. So I think it's important that uh, parents reach out and take advantage of the help that's available in today's world in uh, learning how to relate to teenagers. 
And what are a few of the similarities that you've learned about teenagers, regardless of their cultural background, through your study of cultural anthropology? Yeah. Well, I think one of the big things is to understand that the teenage brain is changing. You know, one lady said, it's like something happened to his brain. And I said, oh, you're right. Something's happening to his brain. You're right. (laughs) Teenagers, and this is true no matter what the culture, teenagers are developing, beginning to develop logical thought, thinking logically. Now, now I didn't say they're logical. I said they're beginning to develop Mm -hmm. logical thought. Consequently, they begin to question things that you've taught them through the years, things that you're saying to them now. And they come back and say to you, well, well, that's just not right, Dad. Well, that's just not right, Mom. No, no, no. I read the other day, da, 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 and they tell you something they read. They're questioning you, and parents often get defensive. And they come back and say things like, don't you question me. And now they stop the flow of having an influence on them. They just cut them off, as it were, emotionally. So then they don't share things with you. They just do their own thing. And one day you wake up and realize that they made a whole bunch of wrong decisions, poor decisions, and they never discussed them with you. Well, the reason they didn't discuss them with you is because you shut them down. You know, when you just came back and said, don't question my word. No, we need to play to that reality. The, the brain is changing. They are beginning to think more logically. They are going to ask you questions about things that, that you think they've accepted through the years. And so go along with it. For example, they say that's not right. We say, tell me about it. What, what, what makes you say it's not right? And they say, well, I was reading this or I was in class. I heard this. And, and, and then you say, what, what do you think of that position? And where do you think that position came from? And here's another question. What, what would happen if everybody in the world took that position? They start thinking, oh, if everybody in the world. Oh, my, well, yeah. And you don't have to. It's not an argument. You're just asking questions. And then you say, well, why don't we both uh, read more about that? And let, let's talk again about that, about that topic. See what you can find. I'll see what I can find. We'll come back and talk again about it. So you're not being dogmatic. You're not coming across as a dictator, telling them not to think, not to question you. No, you're, you're letting them question you. You're encouraging that. Now you're helping them develop logical thought because they will go think about it. You go think about it. They maybe read something. You read something. You come back and share what you're reading. And together, you're having an educational experience. You're learning something from each other now. And this is the way you help teenagers process all the thoughts that are coming into their mind during those teenage years. And and let's face it, too. Teenagers are greatly influenced by their culture. And in our culture, there's an awful lot of negative influences on teenagers. It's not true in every culture. All cultures do differ. But no question about it. In today's world, with all of the technology and everything else that's going on in our country, teenagers are exposed to a lot of different ideas and they're going to question things. If you walk with them and talk with them and listen to them, you can walk with them through the journey. But if you cut them off, then they go to somebody else and they start listening to a professor at the university or they start listening to a high school teacher or they start listening to a friend of theirs. And they will, they will make a lot of poor decisions. So, Let's stay involved. I think that's one of the things I would say as parents. Let's stay involved with our teenagers, even though it's hard, even though you don't want to deal with it. Sometimes you're so busy with all the rest of life. 
but you stay involved with them because you can have the greatest influence of anyone on your teenager if you keep open to discuss things with them. Well, that is encouraging. And I really appreciate that approach because it's an approach of humility to lead with questions. My husband, Mark, and I are a few years away still from having teens in the house, but we will have four teenage daughters at the same time under our roof. <laughs> and so, so I really appreciated reading your book. And the title is Things I Wish I'd Known Before My Child Became a Teenager. And I loved every page of it, but I have to say chapter five was my favorite where you wrote success in life is greatly impacted by how we relate to people. When these skills become a part of the teen's character, they will enhance the teen's relationships both now and in the future. So Dr. Chapman, what are some of the ways that we can begin teaching our teenager social skills? Well, I think one is what we just mentioned when we're talking, that is asking questions. Let the dinner table be a time, for example, in which every night we just ask one question of the whole family on any topic, anything. Let everybody share their answer to that particular question. It's teaching the teenager how to talk, first mm -hmm. of all, how to talk in the presence of other people. And consequently, we're carrying on a conversation around the table about one topic, just one topic that night, just one question. And it may be a five or 10 minute conversation. It may end up being a 30 minute conversation. Our kids say to us that one of their best memories was the conversations we had during the meal and after the meal. Because we'd sit there sometimes for an hour after the meal, once we got going with this. And they say, you know, those are some of our fondest memories because we had a chance to share our thoughts and feelings and ask questions and we could disagree on things, but uh, it was a conversation with the family. And learning how to have conversations in today's world is key to success in life. And this is where the whole digital world is pulling them away from conversations. Uh, they're on the phone texting somebody that's just across the room from them rather than have a conversation they're sitting there texting each other. That's <laughs> mm. not teaching them how to have a conversation. So those kind of things done in the family will set them up for success down the road. I think another social skill is uh, teaching them how to ask questions of people that they meet at school or other places. Teaching them a few questions on what they can do when they're talking with somebody to get a conversation started. A super, super, super. I think another, another skill is learning how to process differences. They're going to run into differences in life simply because every human being they're going to meet is going to be different. So the husband and wife's different. They have different ideas. So how, how do you guys process it? You know, as adults, how do you process when you disagree? Do you argue? Well, if they hear you arguing, then that's probably what they're going to do when they get married because they saw you do it but if they they see you listening to each other and your husband's listening to the wife's position and then he's saying to her you know honey i'm understanding what you're saying and i can see how that makes a lot of sense uh you know here, now here's what i was thinking and he shares his side and she says well i can see that now i can understand why why you'd say that that, that, that makes sense too now now how can we solve our problem 
and you spend your energy then finding a solution to your conflict rather than arguing. Man, your teenagers hear you process something like that. You're giving them the model of how to process conflicts without arguing because many, many marriages are destroyed because they argue with each other. And one of them says, well, that's not right. Well, that's not right. And they yell at each other. And eventually they get tired of that, you know, and then they say to themselves, I just think we're, we're not compatible. And so we can get out of here. So now they break up the marriage. Well, they, now the kids have that to deal with. So you teach your children how to work through conflicts. You're setting them up for a good marriage down the road and good relationships in other places as well. I love this because when you're talking about these social skills of asking questions and listening and the natural kindness that comes out in that way, it's really encouraging them to meet face-to-face with people. And it seems like that is one way to develop it. Are there any other ways that you could think of to develop these social skills? Yeah, I think one of the things that would, would be really, really helpful is to teach them an attitude of service. This is central to, to certainly the Christian life. You know, Jesus said about himself, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. I was walking across the campus of the University of Virginia some years ago. I was speaking in Capitol Auditorium. And in a side door, uh, over that door etched in stone were these words. You are here to enrich the world. And you impoverish yourself if you forget the errand. And I thought, wow, what if every university had that as a theme? (laughs) You are here to enrich the world. And you impoverish yourself if you forget the errand. As Christians, an attitude of service should characterize our lives. It starts in the marriage. The husband has the attitude, I'm here to serve my wife. I'm here to find out what I can do to help her to become the person she wants to become. And she has that same attitude toward him. And then we teach the children that. So one of of the ways to do that, just simple ways, is maybe once a week, every family member gets to tell the whole family. One way that I served somebody this week outside of our family is I did, and they tell what they did. And then everybody says, Man, that's great. Yay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And everybody gets to share. We can also do it just in the family. Like mom can say, one of the ways that I serve the family this week is I made the pancakes on Wednesday morning. And everybody claps and says, yay, mom, we love your pancakes. And then daddy says one way that he served. And then each of them gets to tell one way that they serve the family. So it starts, you start it in the family and then begin to take it outside the family. But if you teach a teenager how to have an attitude of service, looking for opportunities to serve other people, you're teaching them a skill that not only is going to enrich their life, but it's going to have a positive impact on many, many people, everybody that they encounter the rest of their life. They're going to enrich the world. Imagine what would happen if, if, if every Christian family even did that, the impact it would have on our culture. And now a brief message from our sponsor. Thank you to my friend and sponsor, Justin Moss, for making this episode possible. As an expert EOS implementer, Justin has provided over 500 full-day sessions helping business owners implement EOS into their business. EOS is the Entrepreneurial Operating System, 
which is a complete set of simple and practical tools to help entrepreneurs get what they want from their businesses. Justin helps business owners and leadership teams achieve three things, vision, traction, and health. For vision, that's simply helping you get everyone in the organization 100% on the same page with where they're going and how they plan to get there. For traction, that's helping to instill focus, discipline, and accountability throughout the company so that everyone executes on that vision every day. When we think of healthy organizations, let's be honest, there's often a fair amount of dysfunction with teams. But Justin loves helping leaders create a more cohesive, functional, and healthy leadership team. And once the leaders are healthy, they help the whole team become healthy. Mark and I have been friends with Justin and his wife, Jenny, for years. We've witnessed them apply these practices to their own life and their family and their business, and the results are transformational. With Justin's love for Jesus and passion to serve business owners to be better stewards of their businesses, I highly recommend you learn more about his services at his website, justinmost.com. That's Justin, M-A-U-S-T, Dot com. Thanks for your sponsorship. Helping teens learn how to process anger is another skill that seems would serve them well for life. So how did you do this with your own son when he was a teenager? Well, I had to learn by doing. You know, I've, I've sometimes said that when I'm speaking, I don't remember having a problem with anger until I got married. And then I don't remember having a super problem with anger until I had a teenage son. And, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this book is I want to help people before they get there, <laughs> not, not to have to go through what I went through. I had to learn to manage anger because I mismanaged anger. And my son and I would argue and I would speak loudly to him and harshly to him. And uh, I never really thought it was all that bad until one night we had this super, super argument and I was yelling at him and he was yelling at me and I was saying some hateful things to him and he was saying hateful things to me. I think he was probably 14, maybe 15. And in the middle of all of that, he walked out of the room. We were in his room. He walked out of his room, walked across the living room, walked out the front door and slammed the door. And what he did, I woke up and started crying. And I said, oh, God, I thought I was further along than this to be yelling at the son I love. And I sat on the couch and started crying. And my wife came in and tried to console me. And she said, Gary, that was not your fault. I heard the whole thing. He started that. He's got to learn how to respect you. She tried to console me. But it's hard to console someone when they know they've done wrong. And I knew I'd done wrong. So she left the room and I got on my knees and just poured my heart out to God and confessed my failure to God to treat my son in a loving way. And, you know, I've always appreciated the forgiveness of God. You don't ever have to worry that God will, will not forgive you. He will forgive you. I don't care what you've done. So when I got through praying, I got off my knees and just sat there. And I don't know whether it was 30 minutes or how long, but he came back in the house. And when he did, I said, Derek, could you come in here a minute, son? And he came in and sat down in the gold chair, and I apologized to him. I said, I won't apologize to you. 
I said, I know I said some hateful words to you. And I said, that's not the way I feel about you. I love you. And I let my temper get away with me. And I, I yelled at you. A father should never be yelling at a son. And I just poured my heart out to him. And I said, I hope, I hope you can forgive me, son, for what I did. And he said to me, Dad, that was not your fault. I started that. I shouldn't be talking to you that way. And when I was walking up the road, I asked God to forgive me. And I want to ask you to forgive me. And we both hugged and cried and hugged and cried and hugged and cried. <laughs> and once we got through, I said, Derek, why don't we learn together how to talk our way through anger rather than yelling our way through anger? So what if we try this? The next time you feel angry with me, you just say, Dad, I'm angry. Can we talk? And I'll sit down and listen to you. And the next time I'm angry with you, I'll say, Derek, I'm angry. Can we talk? And, and let's sit down and you, and you listen to me. And let, let's share our anger with each other. And let's try to understand why each other's angry. So we can say, okay, I can see how, how, how you'd be angry about that. And then we explain our side of it. And let's talk our way through anger. That was one of the saddest nights of my life and one of the happiest nights of my life. Sad because I had failed so badly. Happy because my son had just demonstrated to me that he knew how to apologize. First to God and then to me. And I knew someday he'd like to be married and he'd need to learn how to apologize. <laughs> so that's what started it for me. And uh, in the counseling room, I've dealt with anger for years and years with couples angry with each other. And never learn how to process anger. Mismanaged anger destroys more marriages, maybe than any other single thing. And mismanaged anger with our children has done more to hurt our children emotionally than almost any, any other thing. So learning how to process anger in a positive way is a skill that every teenager needs to learn. First of all, I just appreciate you sharing vulnerably that story. I think it's very relatable as a parent and a few things. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 7.10, where the Bible says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So I appreciate you bringing that to life. And then also what you just said about mismanaged anger having the power to destroy relationships. What are a few ways that we can avoid that? How can we manage our anger well, rather than expecting to never experience it or to squash it in either person? Yeah, I think anger arises because we feel like the other person has done wrong, has treated us unfairly or wrongly. In a marriage, we get angry because our spouse has fail to do something that maybe they promised us they would do, or they said something or, or did something that hurt us, and we feel anger. And by the time you get to be an adult, you've already got a pattern of handling anger, and we have to learn how to break that pattern. But one of the things I've often suggested both to, to I mean, marriages and with uh, teenagers is if you're overcome with angry, you can feel it. You feel it just rises up, and you're just getting ready to say something you know, harsh. Just call a timeout. And if the whole family can agree that when we get angry, 
rather than saying something, we're going to give each other the timeout sign. And, and what that means is I'm trying to control my anger. And if I, if I talk now, it's, I'm, it's going to be bad. So give me a timeout and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little walk around the block. You know, my mother did say this to me. She said, son, when you get angry, before you say anything, count to 10. Now, I think my mother was on the right track, but I would say you better count to 100 or 1,000. 10 is not long enough for you to cool down, okay? <laughs> so what you could do, and the whole family could do this, you, you give the timeout signal, and you start counting and walk out, walk out the door and walk around the block. And just, just counting, count to 100 or whatever till you calm down. Calm down, you ask yourself, now, why did I get angry? What, what is it that I, that I think they did wrong? And you kind of get it clearly in your mind and then come back and say, okay, I think now I can talk about this if, if anybody wants to listen to me. Or you go to the one that, that you're angry with and say, is, is this a good time to talk about my anger? And they say, well, right now I've got to finish this, but, but hang on, I'll be right with you. And then you sit down and, and you get a chance to share your anger. You talk, talk your anger, just tell them why you're angry. And it's a parent, if it's a teenager that's sharing the anger with you, then you're listening to them. You're trying to put yourself in the, in the mind of a teenager, look through the, looking at the world through their eyes. And then you can honestly say, you know, honey, I can see how you'd feel that way. I can see how you could be angry. And you know, if I were in your shoes, I'd probably be angry too. And you would, if you were a teenager and you had their mind and you had their interpretation of the situation, you'd be angry too. And when you say that, you're making it legitimate for them to feel anger. Listen, everybody feels angry. Even God, the Bible says, Psalm chapter seven, verse 11, God is angry every day with the wicked. We get angry because we're made in God's image and we, we're concerned about right. And when we feel like we've been treated unfairly, we get angry. And so once you say that to them, you know, if I were in your shoes, I would, I'd, I'd probably feel exactly like you feel. Now, let me share my side, you know. Maybe, maybe the teenagers are angry because you're not letting them go to a particular party, okay? And so they share, they share that with them. All, all their friends are going to be there, da-da-da-da-da. And the parent says, says you know, I, I would feel the same way if I were in your shoes. But let me tell you why I'm not going to let you go. I had a call from Jimmy's mother last week and just she just said in the conversation this party is only for 16 and above and you're only 15 so I cannot put you in a bad situation by letting you go there knowing that she's already told me this is for 16 and above so I can't I can't do that or maybe they're angry because you're not getting them a cell phone and you Tell them the same. You listen to them. You say, if I were in your shoes, I'd probably feel the same way. But let me tell you why I'm not getting your cell phone. And then you tell them why. And then, and then they say, well, yeah, everybody in my class has one. And we'll say, honey, I'm not the parent of everybody. I'm your parent. And I have to do what I believe is best for you. And I don't think you're ready for that. So whatever the topic, if you listen to them first, and seek to understand and then express understanding, then you can share your side. And you're still the parent. I mean, don't let a teenager cause you to do something that you don't think is good for them. As parents, we're supposed to be doing things that are good. We're not, we're not there to make them happy. 
We're there to do things that we think are best for them, that will best equip them for life. And so uh, you can do that, and you can do it in a kind way. And, and yes, they may be unhappy at the moment, but that's all right. They will come to appreciate the fact that you did things that you believed was for their benefit. And I think that that empathy would be very disarming to them. And again, you're playing out biblical principles that a gentle answer turns away wrath. As we talk about anger, I think it's also important to talk about apologizing and forgiveness, which in chapter seven, you focus on teens and how they can learn to apologize and forgive. So if you combine that with your research from another book that you've written on that topic, what are the five languages of apology and how can we model these for our teenagers? Yeah, I think apology, again, we typically learn from our parents, uh, typically when we're little kids. But what we discovered is that people have different ideas on what a sincere apology looks like, and primarily because they grew up in different families and they were taught different things. So uh, here, here are the five that we discovered. Uh, one is, uh, I'm sorry, which is a way of expressing regret. It's trying to communicate that you feel badly about what you did. Now, in our culture, I'm sorry, it's just become kind of a, I mean, you just bump in somebody into an elevator and you say, I'm sorry, you know, or excuse me. But really, we're trying to communicate what the prodigal son did when he came home to his father after he'd wasted all of his money. And he said, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son. After all, what I've done, I'm not worthy to be your son. If you could just give me a job on the farm, Dad, that's all I want. You can sense the regret in his voice. He regrets what he's done. And so we're trying to communicate that we, we feel badly about what we've done. And so when you use the words, I'm sorry, don't ever use just those two words. Tell them what you're sorry for. I'm sorry that I lost my temper and yelled at you. you know, tell them what you're sorry for. And don't put in the word, but. You know, I'm sorry that I lost my temper and yelled at you. But if you had not, then I would not. And now you're not apologizing. You're blaming them for your poor behavior. So one is expressing regret. Another apology language is accepting responsibility. I was wrong. I should not have done that. There's no excuse for that. I accept full responsibility. Now, this is big for some people. If you don't accept responsibility for your behavior, this can be taught to children when they're younger than teenagers. I remember when my son and I were in the kitchen together, he was probably seven years old. He accidentally knocked the glass off the table and it hit the floor and broke. And when I heard the noise, I turned and looked at him and he said, it did it by itself. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Derek, let's say that a different way. I accidentally knocked the glass off the table. And he said, I accidentally knocked the glass off the table. It's not a sin to accidentally knock a glass off the table. I was just trying to help him accept responsibility for what he did. You know, a five-year-old breaks a cookie and says, it broke. It broke. <laughs> the parent says, honey, let's say that a different way. I broke the cookie. Nothing wrong with breaking a cookie. You're just helping them accept responsibility. But when we do wrong, then we need to admit it was wrong. I should not have done that. And so accepting responsibility is another language of apologizing. For some people, that's really, really important. Another is offering to make restitution. 
what can I do to make this right? And I, I can guarantee you there are many adults that have never even thought of this, offering to make things right. It's what Zacchaeus did when he met Jesus. Remember, he was a Jew who was a ta collecting taxes from his own people for the Roman government and, and taking more than the government wanted and putting it in his pocket. And when he encountered Jesus, Zacchaeus said, the people I've stolen from, I'm going to pay back four times what I took. That is restitution. So when you realize that you've hurt somebody in the family or out of the family, one way is after you've after you maybe said you're sorry, then to say, how can I make this right? What can I do to make this right? And if this is important to them, they'll tell you what you can do. So uh, offering to make restitution. Another, it's really the biblical word repentance, but it's expressing the desire to change your behavior. It's saying to a teenager, maybe that you have raised your voice at, you've yelled at him. It's saying to the teenager, you know, I don't like that about me. I lost my temper and yelled at you. I don't like that about me. And I don't want to keep doing that. Can we get a plan? So I won't do that anymore. Can you help me get a plan? I don't want to keep doing this. So the two of you kind of talk and maybe maybe you come up with the two of you come up with that idea that we talked about earlier of taking a time out that, that I'll just start taking a time out before I lash out at you when I when I'm angry. OK, you're teaching that teenage son a way to apologize. He he is impressed with what you're doing because you're expressing the desire to change your behavior. You see, when we just do the same thing over and over and over and over and we every time we say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's like a wife said to me in counseling the other day. She said, Dr. Chandler, he's been saying I'm sorry for 10 years and he never changes. I mean, how could he be sorry and make no change? So this is this is big. And then number five is actually requesting forgiveness. Will you forgive me? I hope that you can find it in your heart to forgive me. And for some people, this is what they think is a part of a sincere apology. So here's the here's the basic idea. These are five ways to apologize. I suggest you teach all five of them to teenagers because these are the five that we found. We asked thousands of people all over the country, two questions. When you apologize, what do you typically say or do? Question number two, when someone apologizes to you, what do you want to hear them say and do? And their answers fell into these five categories. So these are common, common ways that people do apologize and people expect you to apologize. You see, when you're apologizing to someone, what they're asking in their mind is, are you sincere? But they judge your sincerity by what you say. And so if they've learned, you know, one of these growing up or, or one or two of these is really important to them and you don't mention those two, then you can say, I'm sorry. And, and they don't they don't sense that you're sincere. So teach all five of them to the kids so that they're now acquainted with this and, and then discuss in the family, you know, what, what do we consider number one or two? Which, which are the one or two that you really think is important when we apologize? Now you're teaching them to apologize, but you're also teaching them how to apologize. Now, apology alone doesn't restore the relationship. There has to be a response to the apology. Because you see, whenever we do and say things that create a barrier between us, it's an emotional barrier, like a block in a wall. And that doesn't go away with the passing of time. It goes away only when we apologize and they choose to forgive us. Now, forgiveness is a choice. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. 
there's three Hebrew words and four Greek words that are translated forgive and forgiveness in the Old and New Testaments. But the two basic ideas are forgiveness is to pardon them. I'm not going to make you pay for this. I'm going to pardon you. And I'm going to remove the barrier that this has created between us. So now our relationship can go forward. That's forgiveness. So forgiving your children when they apologize to you and teaching them how you forgive them when they apologize and vice versa. This needs to be learned in the family. In the teenage years, this is hugely important. If a teenager does not learn how to apologize when they do wrong, they'll carry that right into a marriage and they will not have a good marriage. We don't have to be perfect in a marriage to have a good marriage, but we do have to deal with our failures. And that means we have to apologize. And when they apologize to us, we have to forgive. So teaching them apology and forgiveness is a huge way of preparing them for successful relationships as adults. Wow, that is so helpful. And I would assume that a practical way to implement this, an easy way even, is to share this podcast with your teenager or listen together. Our oldest daughter right now is eight years old and they go down to two years old. But recently when we were on a road trip, we listened to an episode of the Savvy Sauce all together because there was something that we wanted to process and teach them. And for whatever reason, sometimes it's easier when it comes from somebody who's not mom or dad. So even sharing this episode, when you hear the guest articulate these life lessons so well, it can promote great conversation. So I appreciate that lesson. If you've benefited in any way from the Savvy Sauce, we would love to invite you to become a patron. If every listener gave just $1 per month, it would completely offset all our production costs. We want to keep majority of our content free to the public, and one way to do that is with your help. Please consider joining Patreon today and finding out what perks you can receive for pledging $2, 5 or even $20 per month. Sometimes the best way to learn something is through recognizing its opposite. So what are some regrets that you've heard parents of teens express over the years? I think the most common regret that parents have is they didn't take enough time with their teenager. Uh, And it goes both ways. I remember uh, I was at the cemetery and I was burying a dad and his 25-year-old son was there. And after the burial, I started talking with him and he said to me, I never really knew my dad. He said he was, he was a good father in that he worked and he, he made money and he provided for us. He said, but he, he traveled a lot in his job and he was gone a lot during the week. And he said on Saturday, he always played golf. And he said that there just, there just wasn't much time. He said he never came to one of my ball games because he was always out of town. And he said, I just never got to know my father. And I I walked away with tears in my eyes. How sad that was. Parents say this when their kids are grown. It's one of the most common things I hear. I just, I regret that I didn't make time to be more with my kids. And the other regret is that they did not encourage that child in some interest that they had. Maybe the child was into, into music 
and the parrot was not into music and they didn't like the music that the teenager was into. And so they kind of put it down all the time. Uh, my son, for example, he, he had a, the gift of music and he played the guitar. And in high school, he had a little rock band. He was a lead singer, <laughs> guitarist. And my wife and I would go to those little places here in town, you know, where he would, his little group would be playing. We'd go there to support him. Now, did I like all that stuff? No, to be honest, no, I didn't. But it, it wasn't sinful, you know, <laughs> just a form of music I didn't like. But we went and, and he looked back on it and said, you know, I, I appreciate the fact you guys always came out, you know, to that. You always were there. I think uh, in, encouraging them and whatever they happen, if they're into sports, then, yeah, you, you encourage them in the sports. You go and be involved with them in the sports. Whatever their interest is, you, you, you go with them. Because if you go with them, then you can have an influence on them, you know, and, and they respect you. If you just don't go with them because you cut it off because you don't like it, uh, then you kind of lose the opportunity to spend time with them. Another thing that we did with our, our teenagers, both of them, is I would have a breakfast outside the house with our daughter once a month and with our son once a month. Just go out and have breakfast together and just chat, you know, and they both look forward to that. And, and they, as they got to be adults, they looked back and said, yeah, that was, that was just, a, just a wonderful thing. You, you, you went out and took us out to breakfast, and we just got to talk with, just with you, you know. And then depending on their love language, this is the other thing. Because sometimes teenagers will withdraw from parents because they don't feel loved. And sometimes the parent's not even aware of it, and they learn about it later. Like a 13-year-old young man some time ago had run away from home and he ended up in my counseling office and he said to me my parents don't love me they love my brother but they don't love me i knew his parents i knew they loved him the problem is they had never discovered his primary love language and consequently they weren't speaking it and he didn't feel loved so uh, when a parent realizes that they they regret that they didn't understand that you know and it's not their fault i mean but maybe they never heard about it and, and so parents by nature love their children but not all children feel loved and not all teenagers feel loved and it's a it's a real detriment to them if they don't feel loved by their parents so those those are some of the things that parents regret i think uh, later on and if anybody wants to dive deeper into that topic, I will put a link in our show notes to our previous conversation about the five love languages. And the first time that that aired, it became one of our top 10 most downloaded and most popular episodes of the year. So I know that's helped so many people and we'll link to that. But on another topic, why do you think it's important for us as parents to encourage our teens spirit of independence? rather than trying to deter or squelch it. I think that's super, super important. You know, in our culture, and I like to remind parents of this, in our culture, when they get to be 18, typically, they're going to either go off to the university, they're going to join the military, or they're going to get a job, we hope. <laughs> they're going to do something. And so we have 18 years to teach them how to make it out there beyond our house, how to make it at the university, how to make it in the military. So 
we ought to be thinking independence and not, you know, that they're going, we're going to forever be there to make decisions for them. Then they're going to make decisions on their own. So we need to be helping them with that whole process. That's why I think it's so important when they, for example, they don't want to sit with you anymore in church. They want to go sit with the youth group. Well, to some parents, if that's been going on for during the whole childhood, they sit with you. You feel like, oh, I don't like this. They're moving away from me. Well, that's true. They are moving away from you. But give them give them independence. They're going to be sitting with church kids, you know. <laughs> Let them sit with them. <laughs> that pulling away and wanting to do things with their friends or people at school or whatever, that's a positive thing. Now, I don't mean that you let them go to everything that, that might come along, you know, because they're going to be influenced. Wherever they go, they're going to be influenced, either positively or negatively. But we should encourage independence and teach them things that will help them be independent. Uh, for example, teach your children, guys and gals, how to wash clothes, how to do laundry. They don't teach you that at the university, and your clothes get dirty at the university. <laughs> You know, I know, I've known students that, you know, they live close enough, two or three hours away, they bring their dirty clothes home all the way through college because they don't know how to clean them, you know. <laughs> and teach them how to cook. If they want to learn how to cook, teach them how to cook. Don't cook all the meals for them. Teach them how to cook because someday they're going to have to cook for themselves, maybe for somebody else. In fact, I suggest the parents make a list of all the things that you would like your child to know how to do by the time they're 18 years old. And if they're teenagers, let them help you make the list. Maybe the teenagers say, well, I'd like to learn how to change a, a tire on a car in case I someday have a flat tire. I'd like to know how to change it. So you teach them how to do that. What, what would they like to learn how to do by the time they are 18 and get ready to leave? Making a list of those things and then teaching them to them age appropriately and as they are interested uh, you can prepare them for adulthood. And I think you wisely expound upon this topic of independence on page 53, where you write, with developing independence comes developing responsibility. So will you elaborate on that thought and lay out some examples for application? Yes, I think these two have to go together, independence and responsibility. For example, when they get to the age where in their state they can get a driver's license. And so you're going to allow them either to use the family car from time to time, or maybe you're going to help them get a car of some kind for themselves. That's a huge step of independence. Well, with that independence should come responsibility. So whether it's the family car or a car that you've helped them get, there ought to be some guidelines. Now, now that you can do this, Every Saturday, you have to vacuum the car, run it through a car wash, uh, and, and then bring it home and vacuum the car and wipe it off and, and, and get it clean. Every Saturday, by 12 o'clock. Now, if you don't do that, then you're going to lose the driving responsibility uh, opportunity for two, two days. You're going to miss it. Okay? I mean, that's just an example. So the first Saturday comes around and it's 1130 and they are not out there working on the car. You don't say anything. You've already told them, you know, what's going to happen. So they come at three o'clock and say, dad, can I, can I use the car and, and go da da da? And you say, 
son, you remember your responsibility was to wash the car and vacuum it before 12 o'clock or you lose it for two days. So I'm sorry, but you can't drive it for two days. Oh, dad, everybody's going to be there. And you say, everybody but you, son. Yeah, everybody but you. Or you can say, I'll drive you over there, but you can't, two days you miss it. They will not miss it but one week. I can almost guarantee you. And you'll have the cleanest car in the neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe another responsibility with that is you abide by the speed limit. You abide by the other laws out there on the road. If you get a ticket, if you get a ticket for anything out there, then you're going to lose the privileges for two weeks. You won't drive a car for two weeks. So, and again, if they get a ticket, you stick with it. It's suffering the consequences when you break the responsibility that teaches them how to be responsible. And we want our kids to be responsible kids. So always try to tie some responsibility with the independence. And that's really helpful because I think as parents, we can then come up with creative solutions for both of those. Whatever independence they're starting to gain, then we can creatively come up with a way to attach responsibility to it. And as we're starting to wind down our time together, I'd love to end on this topic where we began because I was so encouraged to read. It was on page 102. And you say, while we hear a lot about peer pressure, research clearly indicates that parental influence is the greatest influence on the teen's decisions. And I'm assuming all of us listening today want to be effective parents. So what is your final encouragement for all the parents of teens listening right now? Well, I would say, first of all, realize that that is true, that your influence on them is the greatest influence. That's why you want to do everything you can to make it a positive influence. Your model of a marriage is the greatest gift you can give. If you give them the, the model of a marriage where the husband and wife loves each other, they serve each other, they work together as a team, you're giving them the greatest gift you can give them. So make your marriage a priority. Now, I know you can't make a marriage by yourself. It's two people have to work together to have a good, good marriage. But you do everything you can to make your marriage a priority. I think the other thing I would say is always be open to learning from your teenagers, as well as open to learning by listening to podcasts like this or reading books you know, like this, reading things that will help you understand teenagers. And if you've never read the five love languages of teenagers, which is for parents of teenagers, because people have said to me, does their love language change when they get to be teenagers? And my answer is no, it doesn't change. But you have to use new dialects because whatever you've been doing, they consider childish. So learn their love language and how to express that love language during the teenage years. And then there's also one for the teenager, a teen's guide to the five love languages. You let them read that one while you read that one for parents. Now you can have discussions about the love languages. And now you're teaching them the whole concept. You're not just loving them. They're now learning how to love others. So keep learning. Always keep learning because there's always something more we can learn that will make us better parents and teenagers. And Dr. Chapman, if we want to continue learning from you, where can we find more of your resources online? 
You can go to fivelovelanguages.com, the number five, fivelovelanguages.com. There's a free quiz there for married couples on the love languages. There's a free quiz there for teenagers. They can take that quiz themselves and just and then you discuss it with them. And all of my books, there's little blurbs on all of my books that are there. So uh, if you want to sign up to get a weekly email from me, you can do that as well. Wonderful. We will put that link in today's show notes as well. And you may already know we are called the Savvy Sauce because savvy is synonymous with practical knowledge or discernment. And so as my final question for you today, what is your Savvy Sauce? I think the greatest personal habit that I have that has enriched my life is not necessarily time with my teen or time with my wife. It's been a daily sit down and listen time with God. For me, it's in the morning because I'm a morning person and my wife is not a morning person. So I'm up by myself and uh, I'm sitting there with God, reading a chapter in the Bible and saying, God, I'm listening. I want to hear what I need to hear. And I'm underlining things. I'm talking to God about them. And we're just having a conversation every morning. I think that then affects everything I do with my wife and my children. And I'm constantly listening to God every day and applying it to my wife and kids. So our relationship with God and that daily sit down and listen time with God is what I would encourage every individual, married, single, parent, teenager, <laughs> whatever. There's nothing like having a sit down time with God. Amen to that. And Dr. Chapman, I am so amazed by the way that God's gifted you to do this work. And you continue to be such an inspiration to me as you genuinely work to steward well this call that God has placed on your life and you faithfully share it with others. So thank you for your generosity and sharing your time and knowledge with us. As always, it was a high honor to host you as my guest today. Well, thank you. It's good to be with you. And let me just encourage you to keep up the good work because what you're putting out, this kind of stuff is helping people. So thanks. One more thing before you go. Have you heard the term gospel before? It simply means good news. And I want to share the best news with you, but it starts with the bad news. Every single one of us were born sinners and God is perfect and holy. So he cannot be in the presence of sin. Therefore, we're separated from him. This means there's absolutely no chance we can make it to heaven on our own. So for you and for me, it means we deserve death and we can never pay back the sacrifice we owe to be saved. We need a savior. But God loved us so much, he made a way for his only son to willingly die in our place as the perfect substitute. This gives us hope of life forever in right relationship with him. That is good news. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and died in our place for our sin. This was God's plan to make a way to reconcile with us so that God can look at us and see Jesus. We can be covered and justified through the work Jesus finished if we choose to receive what he has done for us. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. 
I pray someone today, right now, is touched and chooses to turn their life over to you. Will you clearly guide them and help them take their next step in faith to declare you as Lord of their life? We trust you to work and change the lives now for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are declaring him for me, so me for him. You get the opportunity to live your life for him. At this podcast, we are called Savvy for a reason. We want to give you practical tools to implement the knowledge you have learned. So you're ready to get started? First, tell someone. Say it out loud. Get a Bible. The first day I made this decision, my parents took me to Barnes & Noble to get the Quest NIV Bible, and I love it. Start by reading the book of John. Get connected locally, which basically means just tell someone who is part of the church in your community that you made a decision to follow Christ. I'm assuming they will be thrilled to talk with you about further steps, such as going to church and getting connected to other believers to encourage you. We want to celebrate with you too, so feel free to leave a comment for us if you made a decision for Christ. We also have show notes included where you can read scripture that describes this process. Finally, be encouraged. Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens are praising with you for your decision today. If you've already received this good news, I pray that you have someone else to share it with today. You are loved, and I look forward to meeting you here next time.